If you have a Bible, you can turn to John, book of John. Continuing to read through John's gospel. We'll look at John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Anas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl, kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Micah. Continue our sermon series through the book of Micah. We come to the end of chapter 2. I've mentioned that the book consists of three cycles with a general motion of judgment salvation. And so we come to the end of this first cycle and we have heard a hard and thick word of judgment unveiling the reality of sin and unveiling what sin rightly deserves. And we come now to a little light, a little hope, the beauty of God's grace and mercy on display and promise to a people who have no rightful claim upon it. And so I'll invite you to look at Micah 
chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is the very word of God. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through. They pass the gate. They go out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord at their head. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer. What a beautiful word, Father. May we be given the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it. The riches of mercy and grace poured out upon a sinful people who by virtue of their sin have no reasonable claim upon you except as judge, but to whom you have purposed good And even now, you're bringing good to pass as you, in the Lord Jesus Christ, grant the eyes to see and the ears to hear by the ministry of the Spirit, attend your word with life. Be pleased now to help us, to help us to see the riches of your glorious grace, that we may be encouraged. We pray in Christ's name, amen. imagine two different doctors and one man with cancer. Mm -hmm. These two different doctors treat the same man, but they give fundamentally different reports. The first doctor says, you're fine. Go your way. Eat, drink, and be merry. And the man is pleased for a time. Mm. The second says, you have an illness that leads unto death. It is beyond my skill to heal. But I have heard of one who can, and I would send you to him. It will be a difficult journey, but at the end of it, there is life. The first doctor is the foolish gospel of man. The good news that man demands and supplies is I don't care if it's a lie, as long as it feels good. I only ever want to feel good. Man thinks that blessing is getting whatever he wants, all the time, uninterruptedly, and without consequence. That's what Micah has just set forth as the gospel of man, the gospel that even the people of God were demanding. It's in verse 11. If a man went about preaching wine and strong drink, this would be the preacher for this people. Whatever you want, all the time, pleasure uninterrupted and without consequence. That's the gospel man desires. And it is the gospel that some will preach. But it's a lie. And not only is it a lie, it's a devastating and destructive lie. For who cannot see 
that that means destruction for everyone. The second is the true gospel of God. It says sin is real and devastating and ends in something worse still. But there is one who heals. There is one who saves. There is one who forgives. There is one who extends grace and mercy for those who are stricken with their sin. For the gospel says, take heart. Sin and judgment should be the final word. But it's not. For I am gracious and merciful. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, I have dealt with sin and death, such that sinners condemned to die can find release and life. Micah brings this first and dark series to a close with the light of grace and mercy sketched so briefly in these two verses. But it's sketched particularly against the backdrop of what we've just heard. The one who scatters in judgment gathers in salvation. The one who exposes in judgment surrounds in blessing. The one who imprisons in judgment leads the captives free in grace. This word of blessing and mercy is perfectly on display in the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? Who was sent outside the city to die in exile for us. Who is exposed to the wrath of God and the hateful anger of man for us who was made to bear the reality of sin and death, not because he deserved it, but so that the riches of grace and mercy and life could pass unto us. We often prefer the foolish gospel of man, don't we? Who's not vulnerable to that? No, no, the good news, the only news, the only word I'll admit is getting exactly what I want right now. Everyone else be. And then we get angry. We get angry at God for withholding what we perceive to be what we need. And we get angry for one another in our foolish discontent over not having what we foolishly think that we really need. We often live as if the gospel of man were the truth of God. Such that when we grapple with our sin, when we grapple with its consequences, when we grapple with the miseries of this life, we think, surely God has forsaken me. But isn't that holding God to the standard of our lie? Someone point to a page in scripture where God has said, you will only ever experience pleasure. You will only ever experience pleasantness. Whose experience does that foul word comport with? Isn't the infinitely better word, the infinitely truer word, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. That is a better word. It's the word that Michael, Micah gives to a people who have been confronted with the horror of their sin, the horror of what sin deserves. 
and then the beauty of what God is going to do for them as the utterly undeserving, because God is like no other. So we consider this word of true blessing this morning under three heads. God gathers, God shepherds, and God frees. First, in grace, God gathers. Look at the first half of verse 12. I will surely gather, O Jacob, all of you. I will surely assemble you, O remnant of Israel. Twice he says it. In the Hebrew, the verbs doubled. I will deliver, deliver you. I will gather, gather you. I will assemble, assemble you. It's kind of a simplistic, but it is true. It's twice, and it emphasizes the certainty of it. You can hear the actor doing it. I, I myself, I, I will do this. You have done this, Israel. I will do this, Israel. There's something moving about a story of one who sets out to retrieve the lost. Is there not? I can still marvel at the loveliness of it. I'm moved practically to tears. I'm reading David Copperfield. Not right now. I'm not reading David Copperfield. But you can remember Mr. Peggotty's errand of mercy, if you've read it. He took unto himself an orphan girl. He made her his own, and she turns his back on, turns her back on him, spitting on everything that he had done for her. And instead of rising up in condemnation, what does he do? He sets out to retrieve her. He says, I have made it my mission to look her in the face and say, all is forgiven. Come home. I am reading Cry the Beloved Country right now. And so you can read there about Reverend Kamala who sets out from his village to the terrible town of Johannesburg to retrieve the lost. A lost sister. A lost brother. And in so doing, he comes upon other lost souls that he brings home. Can we hear the beauty of such retrieval stories? Have we lost the categories to marvel at one who sets out to retrieve the lost? I hope not, because the gospel is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. It's a retrieval story, the beauty and the glory of which is unparalleled. Because he was the wronged party. He was the one against whom we had arraigned ourselves, and he is the one who sets out to make all right, to seek and to save the lost. Jeremiah proclaims the same beautiful hope. Jeremiah 23, 3, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. I will bring them back to their fold, and there they shall be fruitful and multiply. Or Ezekiel, the same thing. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, yes, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of cloud and thick darkness. I don't know if you can enter into the experience of a sheep. I often think about this by virtue of my children. My children went through a real crisis at the point in our lives where we disappeared overnight. We put them to bed, and then they woke up and we were gone. Sam went into labor in the middle of the night with our third child, so we had to rush off to the hospital, but they didn't know it. <laughs> they just woke up and they were alone. 
Try to think about that from the perspective of a child. Is anybody going to come for me? We left them with our in-laws. Get it together. We're not that irresponsible. (laughs) Called an Uber driver to go check on them. No, I left them with my in-laws. But they were interested in my in-laws. They were interested in their parents. Where are my parents? Are they ever going to come back for me? Their little world shrunk to this absence and helplessness. I I can't find them. What am I going to do? I don't even know what exists beyond this block. (laughs) How am I going to find them? Imagine a sheep caught in a thicket. The chaos of mind, like death, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Then the shepherd comes. Let's go. The relief, oh, I know this one. The relief of children, I'm here. I'm not going to leave you. I'm here. I came back. They didn't forgive us for a little while after that, but still, I think they were relieved. (laughs) The beauty of that intensity being relieved when one is found. This is the beauty of being found by the Lord Jesus Christ. We weren't looking for him. We were content to die. Perhaps we were scared, but that frightened disposition was being transmuted into more sin and anger and rebellion. And then he snatched us because he came to seek and save the lost. Because this is a God who gathers in grace and mercy to the praise of his glory. Why? The pattern so far in the oracles of judgment has been, this is the charge against you. This is what you have done. And this is my righteous judgment. Idolatry, destruction, exploitation, exile. Now, gathering. Why? There's no reason. Not to be found in them. Not to be found in you. Not to be found in me. Why? Because Micah. Who is like Yahweh? Because this is who he is. Because there's no one like him. Because he is a God who is gracious and merciful. Who does seek and save the lost. Who actually rescues the dying. Who actually forgives the guilty in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a breath of fresh air. This is the breath of life. Breathed upon hearts that were formerly content in death and darkness. Israel here is shown the God who saves. Rather, they're shown their God who is their salvation. There is great cause to be discouraged as we fixate upon the corruption of our hearts and the sins of our hand. Micah gave an unapologetic tour de force of the heinousness of sin. It's true of us even still, isn't it? You fixate on the corrupt desires of your heart. You fixate on the sinful works of your hand. Fixate on the performance of your last week. You're going to crumble in despair. But if you fixate on the Lord Jesus Christ, the provision of God to sinners, in whom there is actual forgiveness, in whom there is actual redemption, in whom God is gathering, who is indeed raised up that he might gather men unto himself. 
There's life. Light. Hope. Relief. Like a scared child being returned to by his parents. Or a sheep thrust into the throes of certain destruction being brought safely home. And that's the second blessing that passes to it. He didn't just gather, he shepherds. God in grace shepherds us. Look at the second half of verse 12. Together I will set them as a flock in a sheep pen, as a herd in the midst of its pasture. I'm going to translate this last phrase differently, so if you're following along, gear up. They will bleat in distress because of men. We'll come back to that in a moment. The image presents the Lord as shepherd over his people, bringing them into the safety of an enclosure, the sheep pen, the enclosure. Sin leaves us vulnerable, doesn't it? Sin leaves us exposed to the wrath of God in judgment and the sin of one another. For all we see upon the vista of human experiences, lies and deceit, perhaps gently cloaked over by a facade of truth and kindness, but penetrate to the heart, what do you see? Malice and deceitfulness. Our sin leaves us exposed to a world of deceit and malice in which we are immediately complicit, vulnerable to the cruelty of one another, and what's worse, vulnerable to the righteous wrath of God. Our sin leaves us exposed. Here, stunningly, God doesn't just gather, but he protects. He places in the enclosure of his love. He surrounds and keeps in goodness and mercy. There's so much lovely that opens up as we meditate upon the fact that the Lord is our shepherd. That's what we sang all last month, isn't it? In Psalm 23, the beauty of being under this king who leads and guides, provides, protects. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Good Shepherd. Children, have you seen the movie Babe? There's a raging debate in the Seifert household. Those of us who are enlightened know that it's an incredibly charming movie. My wife hates it. <laughs> the movie Babe, it's a story about a pig. A little adorable pig who learns how to herd sheep and he's very good at it. The sheep pig. <laughs> he's so gentle. He's so kind, he's so efficient. Even the weathered sheepdog, who are also good, but a little bit gruff, marble. They marvel, they don't marble, they're dogs. They marvel, they marvel at the efficiency, the excellence of this sheep pig. So tender, so gentle, so effective at leading and guiding. David marvels at God's rule over us. He pictures two sheep pigs, goodness and mercy, attending us all the days of our lives. So effective, so lovely, so refreshing at the disposal of our good shepherd. But notice particularly what Micah highlights about God's act of grace in the shepherding. The first word of the sentence is together. Not in the English, but in the Hebrew, unfortunately. <laughs> Second half of verse 12. Together I will set them like a flock in a fold. So you get this notion of unity in this enclosure. The book of Micah opens 
with a subtle lament about the division that have beset the people of God. There's already the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. And then we explore the dynamics within these kingdoms. It's man set against man. <laughs> it's God's people arraigned against each other. Indeed, this division we're going to see later on divides households. Even husband and wife are rent asunder. Not by the gospel, by cruelty, by sin, by defiance of the true and living God. Because the gospel of sin, the gospel of man that says only ever realize your desire and therein is life, inevitably leads to isolation and destruction. There's no way to have relationships of harmony if the currency is deceit and hate. And that is the only currency that man can trade in. Deceit and hate destroys not just other human beings, but relationships. And so the blessing here in being shepherded by this king is not just that he encloses us in love and mercy, covering up our vulnerability with his tenderness and compassion and kindness, but he knits us together. He unites that which was formerly divided. Sin divides God's grace and mercy unites man with God and us as recipients of grace and mercy. Just consider three quick features of what knits us together as those who have received mercy. The first is our weakness. It says so right here. We're all sheep. We're all helpless. We're all dim. We're all prone to wander. I know some of us think we're like commando sheep or like Navy SEAL sheep. We're not. There's no such thing. I don't care what Wallace and Gromit says. It's another pop culture reference. <laughs> all sheep are weak. We are all sheep. Everybody united in that shared experience of wandering. Weakness. And guess what a sheep is for? Slaughter. Judgment. That's what hangs over the sheep. <laughs> That's what knits us together in our experience. It is our weakness. We all, like lost sheep, have wandered. We all continue as sheep vulnerable to our own weak and sinful tendencies. There ought to be a thick vein of compassion and understanding as you look around and you see fellow sheep. People dealing with struggles that are just like yours, despite what you might think or the enemy might lead you to believe that you're the only one with real struggles, that you're the only one who actually grapples with sin, that you're the only one who is laid low again by a week of failures. It's true of everyone. Go ahead, look to your right. Failure. Look to your left. Failure. We're knit together by this truth. We all stand on equal ground before the table of the one that we have betrayed. Even the best of us. Peter, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. That still knits us together. There's understanding to be had. Or there ought to be. What else knits us together? Our strangeness. We're all in exile. The world is not our home and our fundamental identity of sheep in the flock of Christ, Christ follower, is what makes us strange to the world and even occasionally makes the people of God an object of contempt. 
and derision. This is theologically beyond dispute, and I trust I've proved that thoroughly to you from First Peter, because I'm kind of hanging it on a tentative translation here. Look at the end of verse 12, which I rendered, they bleat in distress from man. Like a flock in its pasture, they bleat in distress from man. The ESV renders it a noisy multitude of man, which isn't impossible, but it's not likely. They're making a theologically valid point too. They're saying, okay, it's the remnant of Israel that's been saved, which might lead you to think just a couple. <laughs> it's a remnant. Just a few, and indeed, Micah does seem to lament that there really aren't many left in Israel at the time. But the fact is, there's always more left than any individual can see. Isn't that what Elijah said? He's like, I'm alone. I'm the only one who serves you. Kill me. He's like, be quiet. There are 7,000 others that haven't bowed in. You're not alone. Stop fussing. Have some food. <laughs> You're probably just hangry. There's always more than meets the eye. The ESV is saying those who have been made recipients of mercy are a multitude that cannot be numbered, which is theologically true, but not Micah's point right here. Because <laughs> that would be a really strange way to highlight a large number, talking about how noisy they are. And the verb that they translate noisy usually has tones of confusion and distress. And it's plainly predicated of the sheep here. So they're bleeding in confusion and distress. And then it gives the reason why. Man. The world. That God's work of grace in shepherding, guarding, leading does not mean that his people will not be distressed. In fact, those two realities are coincidental. <laughs> Not coincidental. They're coinciding. They're taking place at the same time. That's what David says in Psalm 23. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. The provision of God's grace does not mean that all of these stressors, distressors, are removed. But rather the provision of God's grace finds its richness by the fact that it takes place in the presence of enemies that he sustains his people in the world and does not take them out of the world but this knits us together because it is our shared lot in the lord jesus christ we are all of us strangers and exiles in the eyes of the world and thus we have much in common but the most intense bond of our unity is what we belong to one shepherd our Savior is the bond of our unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. All united in Christ's death, raised with him in newness of life. All retrieved by the one who lays down his life for the sheep. For you are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's true of every single one of us. We have all been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said before, you fixate upon the sins of others. You fixate upon your own sin. Despair. Death. Destruction. You fixate upon the one who has conquered sin and death. You might just find yourself walking on water. 
you might just find yourself living, following after him. As he leads us forth from our captivity, which is the final point, God frees. Verse 13 reads, The one who breaks out ascends before them. They break out, they pass by the gate. They go out of it. Their king passes by before them. Yahweh at their head. Sin leaves people in prison. Sin leaves people in bondage. Slavery to darkest night and a cruel captor who loves to torment. You can think of the most famous prisons of literature, or even the world, Alcatraz, infamous. It will never be broken out of. The Chateau d'If. I don't know if the French is right there, but it's the Count of Monte Cristo. The infamous prison that no one will ever break in or out of. It was a favorite of Dr. R.C. Sproul, and some of our members I know love it as well. There's no escape. There's no escape. It's an island. <laughs> it's a prison on an island. Where are you going to go? There's no breaking out of this reality. Because of Israel's sin, they were sold into captivity. This was their experience under Egypt. It was their experience in the Babylonian captivity. There was no escape. There was no release. There was no hope by virtue of any natural consideration to be returned home. Until Micah announces this king who conquers. He conquers for his people. He is raised up before his people. And he leads them. Such a beautiful picture here. Listen, he just relishes in it. He who opens the breach goes up before them. Oh, just pause there. If he went up, it means he went down. This is God we're talking about. If he went up, it means he descended. If he ascended, it means he descended. Why? Because we can't save ourselves. He came to us. The one exalted at the right hand descended, became man, nay, a criminal crucified upon a cross to retrieve you, to retrieve me from darkest night. Now he goes up on the third day and he doesn't stop there. He ascends to the right hand and his glory will be brought to pass in full when he returns and vindicates his name and all of his followers. But there's a delight here in every step of the liberating journey, they break through, they pass the gate, they go out by, I mean, it intimately brings you into that experience, it invites you into that cell, which you had no reason to consider ever escaping. It's a variation on that earlier angst and terror of the sheep of the child suddenly relieved, now it's a prisoner. I have no hope of escaping this dungeon dungeon of sin, the dungeon of misery, hanging over me the sentence of death. And then the chains fell off. The door opened. The cell filled with light. You walk out. You pass by the door that previously was unbreakable. You go out by it and you leave. Why? Because he's conquered and he's leading a host of captives free. 
the Lord Jesus Christ on the third day didn't just raise for himself. We were raised with him. We were seated with him. We are the train of captives whom he is leading free in his way. It beautifully capsulates that the Lord is at their head. Where the head goes, so the body goes. Where the head went, to the cross, that's where the body is now. The way of the cross. But the beautiful message is, that doesn't mean that God isn't operating in grace, for it's only the lie that says, all glory, no cross now. The beauty of the gospel is, no, cross born in full by Christ. You walking the shadowy way of the cross, not in full, because he removed condemnation. He removed wrath such that as we follow him with our crosses, it's never a question of whether we're being made to drink the cup of wrath. Because he drank it in full. <laughs> the crosses that we bear now as we look unto the Lord Jesus Christ as he leads us forth in liberty have nothing of the cry of dereliction about them. He was forsaken so that we would only know favor. He cried, Father, why have you forsaken me such that even in our darkest night, we could still, with full confidence, rooted in the promise of God, cry, Abba, Father. To know that he is near. For even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because God is faithful to his promise. I will be with you. You will be my people. I will be your God. And I will dwell among you. Micah says, this is your hope. O Israel, you're going to pass through the flood. You're going to pass through the fire. But your king is among you. And he leads you in victory. This is a better word of life. This is a profoundly better gospel that says, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world for you. Let's pray. Mm. Why should it be, O oh Lord, that we should gain? Why should it be that you have shown us such infinite grace and mercy? Why should it be that you have prepared for yourself vessels of mercy? When the testimony of our hearts is, we are just as undeserving as the unbelieving world. Just as undeserving as those who perish in their sin. And yet, so that your name may be praised, you retrieve. For you have come to seek and to save the lost. Father, as we consider how you have sought and established us. May we never tire of boasting in your grace and mercy. May we never be deceived into thinking that it was something that we had done. So that the riches of your grace and mercy might shine forth magnificently before our eyes. And on display fully in the Lord Jesus Christ that more and more...
would be released, gathered, guarded, and caught up in the chorus, worthy is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you, and we declare that you are blessed, O God. And we do this in Christ. Amen. Mm -hmm.